right, good morning again. Would you take your Bible? Let's open to the book of Galatians as we do our third study in the book of Galatians. This one is called Set Apart to Reveal His Son. We're in Galatians 1. We're going to begin in verse 11. Set apart to reveal his son. So once you locate the text, if you're physically able to stand, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Galatians 1, verse 11. Galatians 1.11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel, Galatians 1.11, which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. 15. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your living word. Thank you for the stories of grace that fill the pages of scripture and that fill the pages of world history. Uh, throughout the centuries, you have called unexpected people to heights that they never would have known save the call of God in their lives. You took fishermen and shepherds and men who were persecutors of the church like Paul, unexpected channels of grace, and you saved them and you called them and you used them to extend the gospel in surprising ways. Each of us who are here this morning have a story of grace. Those of us who are saved, we... We realize the depths from which you saved us. And even if we don't have what we call a radical testimony, conversion to the living God is always a beautiful, miraculous event. And Lord, we're just grateful for it. And we're grateful for what follows that conversion, that you use our life for great purposes that not only have to do with this time, but have to do with eternity. How can we begin to thank you for this great salvation, Lord? only to say that we are humbled and that we are just uh, in awe of how much you've loved us. Even from the foundation of the world, you loved us and you called us. There are some great mysteries here, but we're just gonna just lean into you this morning, celebrate our salvation, look at the incredible ways that you use people, and I pray that what you wanna say to your people, Lord, would come through clearly. We'd be encouraged, we'd be challenged, and we'd be more equipped to be ambassadors of this great message of hope in Christ. In his name we pray, all God's people said, amen. amen. God does use unexpected people. That's why I'm standing here uh, today at a pulpit. Uh, I was uh, a young man who grew up in a uh, Roman Catholic Italian family. And I had heard some truths about the God of the Bible from early childhood, I had a praying grandmother uh, who would often bring me in 
to her bedroom and we would pray about things. And she had a statue of Jesus there and uh, we would often kneel and we would pray. But as uh, I grew up, there was a lot of turmoil in my household. Uh, my mom went through some serious bumps and bruises. Dad left when I was four years old. Many of you have heard that story before. And so as that happened, the, the family had some traditional beliefs. They got me through some foundational things, and then we just pretty much stopped going to church. And I was about 12 or 13 at that time. Went into the formative years of junior high and high school, and I will say that just being influenced by peer pressure, uh, having a missing father figure in my life, uh, just you know, doing some sadly typical things that boys do, and then kind of carrying that into high school, I just totally got away from God. I got away from the foundations I was taught, and I made some, you know, what I would call some, some pretty major mistakes. Now, they wouldn't be maybe surprising mistakes to most of us who have our own bumpy story before we came to Christ, but I did a lot of the typical things uh, have, have some pretty good regrets of those years. And uh, I was invited to a Bible study when I was about 20 or 21 by a woman who was attending a Calvary Chapel. With my uh, Italian Catholic background, when I went into that uh, Monday evening Bible study at Calvary Costa Mesa, I was so blown away by Christian church and worship, I don't remember one thing that was spoken that evening. It was Chuck Smith he sat on a step, opened his Bible. I was just too busy looking around, <laughs> trying to figure out where these people were coming from with Hawaiian shirts and acoustic guitars and uh, just things that I wasn't used to. Some of the services I went to were in Latin. They were very formal. Uh, and I just, I just didn't get it. In fact, I think I spent about half that church service trying to figure out a, a, a exit plan but it was very long pews and there was no gracious way to get out, but I was very uncomfortable. That's what I remember. About a year later, um, my cousin was playing on a slow-pitch softball team and it was, a, it was a church team and they invited me to play and I was nursing a, a knee injury. I was trying to chase a, a professional baseball career. I got injured. My cousin said, well, while you're healing, why don't you come and play on our church slow-pitch team? We'll just put you at first base and you can come out and play. And yeah, sure enough, it was a group of Christians, and uh, it didn't take long until I was playing shortstop for them, and they were inviting me out to pizza, and then they kept inviting me to church. And a long story short, uh, I wandered into a little church in the city of Orange. This is in the late 80s, heard the gospel message, and my, my wife and I walked down together to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. I can tell you that from the time that I walked forward at that altar call, uh, it wasn't long until I felt an undeniable tug into the ministry. Now that would take shape over a period of years and uh, I would become an elder at 26. Um, I would become the pastor of evangelism, but this all happened through the 90s and I was the guy at the church that everybody knew eventually Michael's gonna go somewhere and pastor because I, I just had this zeal, this, this passion for God. Can I get a woo? Thanks, Paul. Anyway, so I'm saying all that just so you know a little bit of my own personal testimony because today is a little bit about that. But I will tell you this, that even with that tug, I had a lot 
of garbage and uh, stuff in my life that God was working on little by little. I was not one of those overnight conversion stories where I could tell you that after I walked down the aisle, every hang up and every sin and every struggle that I had just instantaneously disappeared and I was now on fire for the Lord. No, it was a, it was a great struggle. Because I knew in my heart that God was calling me to something higher, but I had all this stuff that I had done through those formative years. And so for me, it was little by little, one by one, God would put something before me and say, I want this out of your life so I can use you more effectively. And I would struggle and I would wrestle with it and I would try to release it to God. And eventually my falls into my old sins started to spread out farther and farther and farther until finally those things were behind me. But I will tell you this, it was a struggle. It was, uh, it was not easy. Uh, I tried to go back to the world multiple times. And so just so you know who this preacher is who preaches to you every week, I was not, you know, I didn't, I wasn't on the fast track to become a preacher. You know, it wasn't my dream when I was seven years old. I'm gonna be a pastor someday. In fact, when my wife met me, she had no idea what was gonna happen. She didn't know that she would end up being married to a pastor because when she met me, I was pretty much living in the world and so was she. And we both got saved at the same time and the changes happened in our lives at the same time. So we saw each other, you could say, at our worst and at our best. And God is still doing a work in our lives. 30 years of marriage later, God is still doing a tremendous work in our lives. Thank you. <laughs> All glory to him. God uses unexpected people. That's one of my encouragements to you this morning. And I wrote in my notes, why did the Lord choose Saul, who became Paul? Why this man becoming the main spokesman of the gospel of grace in the first century? Well, I think it's partly because God loves to use unexpected people. But I also think it's partly because Paul knew what it was like to be religious to be committed to the outward keeping of the law. In fact, in Philippians 3, 6, he says, when it comes to the outward measurements of the law, I was blameless. Paul was very zealous for his ancestral traditions. He was a religious man. There was only one problem. He didn't know God. And it's possible to be religious, to be driven by man-made concepts or traditions and here's what happened in Paul's case. Paul was a Pharisee. So over the centuries, a lot of writings came forth that added to the Old Testament law. The law is hard enough to keep, but when you add man's traditions to it, it becomes even more difficult. And so the rabbis would write, and they wrote a lot of information captured in the Midrash and the Talmud and writings like this. And it was, it was layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. So that what it produced in people who actually attempted to keep these writings was pride. And Paul was a prideful man. And he was so zealous for his ancestral tradition, which you know, is captured in our translations as Judaism, that he was driven to destroy the church. When Paul realized that the commandment that he was trying to keep was much deeper than outward uh, you know, dress and diet and fasting and that kind of thing. 
He was a broken man. If you've ever read Romans 7, Paul says the problem is not the law. The law is righteous and holy and good. The problem is me. Paul says, when I realized that the depth of the law, just think about the Ten Commandments, actually looked into my heart. It was not whether or not I had killed a man with my hands or I had committed the act of adultery. It had to do with my way of thinking, my motives. It had to do with... uh, Things when I'm at home and nobody's watching or I'm traveling and I'm in a hotel room. That's where the law goes. The law is not just concerned about how you look on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or how you look at a prayer meeting. The law goes to deep layers. See, God wants to know what you're like in that hotel room, what you're like at home when nobody's watching. And here's the reality for all of us. When we realize that the law goes that deep, that the law is a searchlight, we realize how short we fall of keeping it. We realize how quickly our thoughts can go this way, how quickly we can can have our motives be in question, how pride so easily can slip into what we do. We can look back on a situation and ask ourselves, why did I do that? Why did I act that way? Why did I come across that way? And often, if you're like me, my motives are in question. Because I know that everything is naked and open before the one to whom I will one day give an account. And I want to be clean in the inward parts. I don't want to just put on a show for people. I want to know God and have what comes out of me be a consequence of what he's doing in me. But I will tell you, that is such a struggle. It's such a battle. It is, is, you know, confronting sometimes the ugliest parts of all of us. See, Paul realized in Romans 7, and just write this down for your notes. You can look at really from verse 7 to verse 25, that the law just exposed who he was. And Paul needed to, Come to the grace of Christ just like everybody else. And so the Lord saved Paul. He called Paul. He used Paul. And what the Lord did in Paul, he wanted Paul to produce in other people. Flip ahead to Galatians 4. Look at verse 19 for a second. Galatians 4.19, Paul says these words. He says, my children, Galatians 4.19, with whom I am again in labor until what happens? Until Christ Galatians 4.19 is formed in you. See, when Paul planted a church, it wasn't just about people getting saved, as incredible and miraculous as that is. It was about people being discipled until Christ is formed in you. Romans 8.29 says we're being conformed into the image of Christ. When Jesus gave the great commission to the church, he said, go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That is going to be a process, folks. And part of what we need to do as Christians is rest in the fact that we're given grace every day, and God knows that it's a process. Sanctification, the big word that we hear in church, is a process. But I will say to you that you have a part in that process. Even though God's working, he wants you to yield to his ways. He wants you to understand how much you and I need grace every day. And so Paul says, Galatians 1.11, I would have you know, Galatians 1.11, 
brethren. He's speaking now to family of God. This is Adelphoi in Greek. It's the idea of brothers. I would have you know, Galatians 1.11, I want to make known to you, brothers or brethren, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which was preached by me to those Galatian churches we studied in the first lesson or together, the first sermon, by me is not according to man. The gospel which was preached by me, you could say to you, is not according to man. Now, before we jump into verse 11, verse 10, we saw as a transitionary verse, and Paul talked about these words. He said, now, uh, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. I just want to say something to you about this. One of the big things for me is that happened along this journey that I described to you very briefly is that the Lord confronted me on several occasions and said to me, as close as I can get to an audible voice, Michael, do you want to serve me or not? Who are you most concerned about pleasing? Because, you know, we're, when we're with our buddies and everything, we're all concerned about what everybody else thinks about us. And I just want to throw this out to you as a question. Have you made up your mind who you are? Have you made up your mind what you actually want to live for? Are you willing to live with the consequences, whatever they may be, with your friends and family, because you've made up your mind that you've been called and set apart by Jesus Christ? Once you do that, it becomes very freeing. Because now you don't have to worry about all the other stuff. Because a lot of us, whether we really think this through or not, we're sometimes stalled out by the opinions of others. We're so worried about what so-and-so might think or how so-and-so might react or what will they think. You know, I used to make fun of Christians and now I'm one of them. What would this buddy think or that buddy think? You see, you have to decide. Are you going to serve Christ? Do you want to be used by him? Are you going to stop with the people-pleasing stuff and become a God-pleaser? That's something we all have to do. We have to set aside being driven by the approval of men and we need to say, Lord, I want to please you. That's no easy task because peer pressure is very real for all of us. Now, Paul gets to the origin of his message. He says, I want you to know this is a strong Greek word, which means this is A1 certified, you could say. It's a disclosure formula. I want you to know, says Paul, that the gospel I preached is not something man made up, if you have the NIV. The gospel that I preached is not something man made up. It has divine origin. I wrote this in my notes. It comes from the Father who so loved us, John 3.16, that he sent his Son. It comes from Jesus who gave himself up for me, loved me and gave himself up for me, died on the cross for me. And it comes from the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5, who saved us, God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This gospel that saved me is something that comes from the triune nature of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God loves you. That's why Jesus came. This is the gospel and it's not something man-made up. It's something that comes from a divine source, namely God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Holy Spirit. Have you heard this before? Oh, the Bible's just something that a group of men made up and, and just to help people feel better about their lives. Oh, I, I will tell you that sometimes the gospel doesn't make me feel better about my life at all. <laughs> Amen? Look, if I was going to write this story, I would write it quite differently. And I would probably write it with some things that you know, our measurables, like, okay, if you do these eight things, you can know that you're good, you know. No, 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 that's not the Bible's story. The Bible makes you and I totally dependent on the sacrifice of another and totally dependent on the power of another. And that's where a lot of us have our problem because we're so independent, so self-driven, that's why the cults, when they reach into people's lives and they give them, you know, 10 things or 15 things that you can do, they're so effective because it appeals to something within me that says, oh, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. I can leap tall buildings in a single bound, at least I used to be able to. I can, I can do it, I can do it, and if I can dot those I's, if I can have my list, cross those T's, then I'm good, right? Wrong. That's not what the gospel teaches. The gospel's divine origin tells you that you and I are in so much trouble that we needed a rescue mission from God himself. As one uh, author put it, the gospel tells me that I'm worse off than I thought I was. But the gospel also tells me I'm more loved than I could ever imagine. Amen. Amen. That's the gospel. And it's called the gospel of God. It's God's plan to save us. It's not man's plan. If you want some verses on the gospel of God, it says in Mark 1.14, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. In Romans 1.1, Paul says, I'm a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 1 Peter 4.17 says, uh, for it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The gospel is God's saving message to man. And if you mess with it, you're messing with something that God has put forth to people. That's why in chapter 1, when we looked at verse 6, Paul said, I am amazed, verse 6, chapter 1, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for what? For a different gospel which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, well, he, that person, is to be accursed. Recently, one writer says a Kansas City pharmacist was charged with diluting cancer treatment drugs, Gemzar and Taxol, in order to make a larger profit. So far, uh, this is from a while ago, there are 20 felony counts against the pharmacist Robert Courtney. He admitting to diluting the drugs during a period of time spanning from November 2000 to March 2001. This man held life-saving power in his hands, but for the sake of personal gain, he diluted it to the point where it could not help people. 
People can do that the same way with God's saving truth. If you dilute the gospel, if you change it into a different gospel, you now rob it of its saving power. See, the saving power is within the message that God breathed out. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But if you rob it of its core message, if you don't preach the, that Christ was crucified and raised from the dead for our justification, and you change it or dilute it or add man's program to it, you rob it of its power, and frankly, to use Paul's language, you are under an anathema. You're under the curse of God. Now, that's some serious stuff, is it not, brethren? Now, why do you think God would say that? Because, well, what it puts at stake is people's souls. You could be wrong enough about God and salvation to lose your soul. Why do you think the devil works on such overtime to try to convince people that the Bible's false or the gospel's really not from uh, God, it's from man? Why? Why? Why do people spend their whole lives trying to fight against God, which, by the way, is a losing battle? Because the enemy is on the prowl. So verses 11 and 12 of Galatians 1 have been called a foundational thesis statement. If you go back there, we can take them together. For I would have you know, brethren, Galatians 1, 11, that the gospel which I preach to you is not according to man. It's not man-made, not made up. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, says Paul, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel was not the consequence of a brainstorming session by a creative department. The gospel is not the outcome of a secret meeting or two with hooded people, as you see depicted in some places. It's a dark, smoky room, and there's hoods on people, and they come into the room. What should be in it? What should be out of it? This book's in. This book's out. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. See, see people try to do that to make people nervous. Maybe, maybe, that, maybe that the gospel's not from... No, wait a minute. The gospel is directly from Jesus to a man named Paul who was such an unexpected vessel. A man who was trying to destroy the Christian church. Have you noticed? God saves mobsters. He saves former Muslim terrorists. He saves people who were in all kinds of situations fighting against God. He seems to delight in saving people and using people like Moses who says, God, I, I can't, can't, can't talk real well. I'm gonna use you. He uses unexpected people. Read the Old and New Testament. Fishermen from Galilee who would be made fun of in Jerusalem who had no education, who had funny accents who smelled like fish. <laughs> what do you mean you're going to tell us something? And then they come into Jerusalem and the religious leadership says, well, one thing we know, these people seem to have been with Jesus. <laughs> they had power, boldness, unlike anything that people had seen. All people knew at that time was 
tradition and, oh, the Pharisees are so spiritual and hopefully we can do enough good things. And it's like, no, God turned that whole thing upside down. God uses ordinary people for extraordinary things. Paul says, he gave it, verse 12, I received it. The gospel's from divine origin and it came to me the least of the apostles, I'm not even fit to be called an apostle, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, this 1 Corinthians 15, 10, toward me did not prove vain, but I labored more than them all, or all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. The gospel's not a fairy tale. It's a revelation from God. It's an apocalypsis, if you like Greek words. It's an unveiling. It's a disclosure. The book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ, about who Jesus is and about what's coming for this world. We call it the book of Revelation. And a revelation is an unveiling. It's a disclosure. It's a lifting off of the lid. It's a sacred secret, once concealed, now revealed. And here's what it is. Jesus Christ saves sinners, among whom I am, Paul would say, the foremost of all. It was not from a creative department, not taken from TV, online, or social media. This is God's saving message. And it came to Paul in a remarkable incident. I'd like to show it to you. It's in Acts chapter 9. So three times we have uh, the testimony of Paul, once recorded by Luke, and then a couple of times Paul sharing the testimony, what happened to him when this revelation came his way. This is Acts 9. Look at verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder, Acts 9.1, against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest. He asked for letters from him to the synagogues, Acts 9.2, at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, any Christians, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, Saul was, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Acts 9.5. He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground. And though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. He was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now, when Saul got knocked off his horse, if you will, and he was blinded, this is where the bulk of scholars believe he got the revelation of Jesus. Now, think about it. He saw the risen Lord, right? He saw a bright light, and we'll, we'll read some of the other accounts for a, in, a, in a moment. And he was blinded, and it may be that in the three days following that encounter is when the gospel in its fullness was revealed. Some of you might wonder about that, and you know he went off for a period of years to some other locations, but he immediately, after that three-day situation, he gets prayed for by Ananias, he gets baptized, and immediately he starts preaching Jesus in the city. So he already had the understanding of the gospel probably within that three-day period. Can you imagine the range of emotions as he met Jesus? 
He saw the risen Lord, and then Jesus began to reveal the gospel to him. First, he was confronted. Why, do you, why are you persecuting me? Which, by extension, means my people. I take that very seriously. And think about it. The bulk of the church at this point was Jewish. So that Paul, Saul at this time, was persecuting his own people. He was so angry and frustrated with the Christian gospel that he was doing dastardly things to his own people. This great mystery was delivered to Paul. He said, I delivered what I received. I received it and delivered it. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Now, I want you to turn back, hold your place in the book of Acts. We'll come back there in a second. But I want you to see in Galatians 1, 13 and 14, a few other verses. And we move from a thesis statement in 11 and 12, if you're taking notes. The gospel that I got is from a divine source. It's from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit given to me. We saw when he got it, Acts 9. There's some mystery in how that all unfolded, but we've had that before us. And so you have the thesis statement, and now you have what's called an autobiographical section. A simple way to put that is Paul's now going to talk about his personal testimony to back up the divine origin of the gospel. He's going to say something like this. I wasn't going about looking for new truth. I wasn't on a quest, you know, going to mountaintops and there's got to be something more. No, he already believed he had the truth in Judaism. He wasn't going out talking to other sources or other people that allegedly were prophets or had holy books to see if he could find out truth. He wasn't on that kind of quest. He was actually trying to destroy something he thought was wrong, namely the gospel, which he became the chief spokesman of. So the thesis statement is the gospels of divine revelation, divine origin, and what backs that up is my totally unexpected conversion to it. So he says, for you've heard of my former, Galatians 1.13, manner of life in Judaism. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. I tried to destroy it. Now, let's, let's move back to Acts. And I'm going to show you a few highlights of how Saul, who became Paul, ravaged the church. Just a few highlights, but I think they're worth looking at. Acts 8, look at verse 1. Saul, remember every time we see Saul, we're talking about the man who would become Paul. That was his previous name. Saul, Acts 8, 1, was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. This is Acts 8.2. Some devout men buried Stephen, made loud lamentation over him. Look at the pain that Saul caused. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Acts 9, look at verse 1. Acts 9.1, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He asked for letters from him to the synagogues. We just read that, but look at how he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. How do you think people talked about this man 
in church prayer meetings, in, uh, in plans. We're going to go and evangelize this area, but watch out for this guy named Saul. Man, he has no mercy. He's trying to destroy the church all the way to Acts 22. Paul ends up in Jerusalem later in the book of Acts. He's uh, beaten. Um, they're trying to kill him. And he gets rescued by the Roman guards that see the disturbance, Acts 22. And he, he wants to preach to them because he has compassion for them. And he says, Acts 22, verse 3, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. Now he's become a Christian. And I persecuted this way to death binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem and prisoners to be punished. And finally, if you flip over to Acts 26, Paul is before King Agrippa. And Jesus said that Paul would be his chosen instrument. He would bear this gospel before Gentiles and kings. And we see Paul sharing his testimony as he did in Acts 22 before the king, the great king Agrippa. And he said these words, this is Acts 26, 9. So then I thought myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, Acts 26, 10, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. Maybe something like this. You renounce that Jesus now, that he is not the Messiah. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting But get up and stand on your feet. We get a little bit more detail about what happened now. For this purpose, I've appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you or what I'll show you. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power or the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And so, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I kept declaring to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Back to Galatians chapter 1. There's a place for you and I to share our personal testimony, to share our story, even if your story is not some, you know, radical, 
I went from this terrible lifestyle to becoming a Christian. There's a place to share your story. A place to talk about how God's power and love have changed you. Can I ask you, when's the last time you shared your story? When's the last time you told somebody about how Jesus saved you? You see, we've been called to reveal God's son in our lives. You can imagine how much Paul perplexes the skeptics. Why would God, why would this man be involved in the gospel? This is a, from my notes. Why would this man, the hater and persecutor of the Christian faith and church, become a main spokesman for its message? Imagine someone saying, psst, psst, Paul, come over here. Boy, have I got a great deal for you. You're going to quit your job as an exalted Pharisee, likely a member of the Sanhedrin, on the fast track to the high chair, to become a Christian. You're going to be hated and hounded by many of your own people. You'll endure arduous travel and sickness. Uh, Paul may have been divorced by his wife as a result of becoming a Christian. We don't know for sure. You'll know deep depths of spiritual warfare, division in the church, false teachers. The burden for the churches will be constantly on your back. Those who fall into sin, false teaching, you'll be stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked, beaten with rods, and finally beheaded. Okay, where do I sign? <laughs> Sounds terrific. That's why Paul drives skeptics cuckoo. Because they don't know what to make of this. How could this man be the man? If someone was going to cook up a story and the gospel was man-made, why would this man die? Why would he leave a cushy uh, job as a Pharisee, which he had reached the heights of religious power and respect? Why would he do it? This shows you the integrity of the eyewitnesses of the early Christian faith that they were not what you would expect. They were not some band uh, doing a powwow in Jerusalem coming up with all this stuff. No, no, no. They were all stories of a radical call and the grace of God and the unexpected vessels. That's why you and I are here. You see, the man who violently and intensely wanted to destroy the church now became its chief spokesman. Why did Paul want to destroy the church? Well, because he thought it was a threat to everything he believed in. He thought maybe he could compare himself to Elijah in the Old Testament who destroyed the prophets of Baal. Maybe that's how he justified it in his mind. I'm right to do this because it's a threat. And maybe he thought, well, people's souls are at stake. And there are misguided people in our world and sometimes they have zeal for the wrong things because this, they're convinced that the gospel's a threat, and then all of a sudden the scales fall from their eyes. Amen? That's why we need to pray for people. Because God delights in using unexpected people. He says, Galatians 1.14, we're winding down. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries. You could say Paul was at the top of his class, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Not just for the Bible, but all the rabbinic uh, writings, all the, the extra-biblical writings. 
Paul even was trained under Gamaliel, Acts 22, 3, and even defied Gamaliel's counsel regarding the church. Gamaliel said, if this is from God, you're not going to stop it. So just leave these men alone. And Paul even defied his own teacher's advice. I don't care what you say, Gamaliel. You were my teacher, but now I'm going to destroy that church. Even Gamaliel, what are we going to do with this guy? Right? Young and zealous. No, I'm not listening to you. I'm going to destroy this movement. This threatened everything. It threatened Saul's way of life. He was advancing. He was moving on up to the east side, to a deluxe apartment in the sky. (laughs) Some of you will know where that's from. Now I want to show you one more. It's in 1 Timothy 1, to your right. I know we're all over the Bible, but we got to do some cross-referencing to just put the pieces together. 1 Timothy. And if you don't want to turn there, just listen to it. This is so beautiful. This is Paul writing one of his pastoral letters to Timothy, and he, he says this. Another place where he shares his testimony, he says, 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though, 1 Timothy 1.13, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement. It deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost or chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. When you read back to Galatians 1, and we'll finish it, some of the accounts of Paul and how patient he is with his brethren even after he gets beat up and left for dead, why does he go back and preach to them? Why does he have so much compassion? Because he knows that he used to be just like them. Application point. When you have a friend who's fighting you and they seem to have a deflector shield around them every time you bring up God or the gospel, never forget where God saved you from. Never forget how ignorant you were to the truth of the Bible and to the ways of Christ because sometimes we get on in our years as a Christian and we start looking at people and oh, they can't figure this out. I mean, I don't even know. And then uh, rewind the tape a little bit. Where'd you get saved from? How ignorant were you? You, didn't, you just didn't know. I, there were so many things I didn't know. Each time I heard the Bible taught, it was like, wow, whoa, oops, wow, whoa, oops, I'm not doing that right, oops, I messed that one up, oops, can I get a ouch? I hear about amens in church, but I was doing a lot of ouching, man. I'm like, that preacher's got a copy of my diary. John Newton was the 18th century pastor, author of the timeless hymn, Amazing grace. His lyrics seem to tell each of our stories better than we ourselves could. 
Before John Newton was the great Christian hymn writer, he was a rascal, a slave trader, a rebel. Yet the mercy of God intervened in his life. The Lord Jesus Christ interposed his grace. In a letter to a friend, Newton described his own conversion in ways reminiscent of the Apostle Paul. He said, I, though long a ringleader in blasphemy and wickedness, was spared. And though banished into the wilds of Africa where I was the sport, yea, the pity of slaves, I was by a series of providences little less than miraculously recovered from the house of bondage and at length to preach the faith I had long labored to destroy. Shortly before death, John Newton composed his own epitaph. It reads like something the Apostle Paul might have written. He wanted it inscribed on plain marble with no other monument or inscription. This is a grave marker. Lest anything distract from the grace of God. And he, he wrote the following to be on the grave marker. Quote, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to, the, to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. These are the things that God does. You see, Galatians 1.15 says, When he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, we hear of Jeremiah's call in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and I set you apart to be a prophet to the nations. You could also look at Isaiah 49.1 that most believe applies to the Messiah. Listen to me. Pay attention, Isaiah 49.1, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. Before I was born, the Lord called me, NIV. Do I understand how that all works? No, I do not. But I think a lot of you have a sense as you study the Bible, that this call on your life came long before you realized it. You see, God had a plan. He had good works prepared beforehand, and your job is to, Ephesians 2.10, walk in them. God has a great plan. He wants you to yield to the plan. His plan for Paul and for the church, each Christian, was to reveal his son, Jesus, in me. I want people to see Christ in me, the hope of glory, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Get God's sense of humor. The Gentiles were people Paul hated. He thought that they were created only to fuel the fires of hell. He was a Jewish religious Pharisee who wouldn't even give a, a thought about Gentiles. And now he becomes the chief spokesman to the Gentiles. You know, God's going to do a work in your heart as you yield to him. You'll start loving people you couldn't even imagine you'd love. You'll have compassion for them. You'll want them to hear the gospel and to know him. It's a life-changing work that the Lord does. See, God calls and equips. He changes our hearts. So Paul says, he wants to reveal his son in me. And I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me just to make sure they know the divine origin of the gospel. I went away to Arabia, returned once more to Damascus. We'll, we'll talk more about that as we move forward. I want to end with a story. And uh, this story, just let me just read it to you. It says, I had always been an agnostic and den denied Christianity. 
Robert C. Ingersoll, a famous agnostic, was one of the most intimate friends, one of my most intimate friends. He once suggested, see here, Wallace, you're a learned man and a thinker. This story is about Lou Wallace, governor of New Mexico. Why don't you gather material and write a book to prove the falsity concerning Jesus Christ that no man such as him ever lived, much less was the author of the teachings found in the New Testament. Such a book would make you famous. It would be called a masterpiece, a way of putting an end to the foolishness about this so-called Christ. The thought made a deep impression on me, says Wallace. We discussed the possibility of such a book. I went to Indianapolis, my home, told my wife what I intended. She was a member of the Methodist Church and naturally did not like my plan. But I decided to do it, and I began to collect material in libraries here and in the old world, and I gathered everything that period of that period in which Jesus Christ, according to legend, should have lived. Several years were spent in this work. I'd written nearly four chapters, when it became clear to me that Jesus Christ was just as real a personality as Socrates, Plato, or Caesar. The conviction became a certainty. I knew that Jesus Christ had lived because of the facts connected with the period in which he lived. I was in an uncomfortable position. I'd begun to write a book to prove that Jesus Christ had never lived on earth. Now I was face to face with the fact that he was just as a historical personage as Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, Virgil, Dante, and a host of other men who had lived in olden days. I asked myself candidly, if he was a real person and there was no doubt, was he not also the Son of God and the Savior of the world? Gradually, the consciousness grew that since Jesus Christ was a real person, he probably was the one he claimed to be. I fell on my knees to pray for the first time in my life. I asked God to reveal himself to me, forgive my sins, and help me become a follower of Christ. Towards morning, the light broke into my soul. I went into my bedroom, woke my wife, and told her that I'd received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Oh, Lou, she said, I've prayed for this ever since you told me of your purpose to write that book, that you would find him while you wrote it. And indeed he did. Lou Wallace did write a famous book. It was a masterpiece and the crowning glory of his life's work. He changed the book he was originally writing and used all his research to write another book. Now, every time I watch, watch the epic film made from that book and see Charlton Heston racing those four magnificent white horses in that amazing chariot race, I wonder how many have seen Ben-Hur. With its moving references to Jesus and know it was written by a man who wanted to disprove that Jesus ever existed and instead became convinced that he was the greatest man who ever lived. Father, thank you for your life-changing power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for how you save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Thank you that you reached into my own darkness, my own sin, and you rescued me. You showed me the love that you had for me and for your people from really before time began. I don't understand all of it, Lord. But I know this. You are faithful to save sinners, to change hearts, and to use unexpected people. 
And I pray that that reality would be an encouragement to those who are listening to my voice right now who may think, oh, the Lord could never use somebody like me. He could never save somebody like me. He could never use me to share his gospel with others. Oh, he can. And he does, and he will. Maybe in these few moments as the word of God has gone forth, you could just do some business with the Lord. And maybe for you, it's to trust him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe for you, it's to say, Lord, I'm gonna yield my life to your plan to use me and my gifts and my calling. Maybe for you, it's just a realization of how deeply you are loved and how his grace is so incredible. Father, would you do your work in the hearts of your people as they meditate on your word, look to you. I pray that you'd be saving the lost, equipping the saved, and encouraging each one to be an ambassador of your hope. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.